Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Pim Fox, along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day, we bring you the most important, noteworthy, and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find the Bloomberg PL Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and Bloomberg.com. The topic now is investing in the cannabis industry. Adam Bierman is the co-founder and the chief executive of MedMen, and he joins us from Los Angeles. Adam, thanks very much for being with us. Tell people about MedMen and about your latest and largest acquisition. Hey, Pim. Good morning. Uh, always good to talk to you. Um, yeah, so uh, MedMen is a uh, is a cannabis company here based out of Los Angeles. Um, we are a retailer first and foremost, um, but we also have factories in every market that we operate in. So we completely control the supply chain. Um, but you know, focus is really California and has been for a while. Uh, I think you're referencing the Pharmacan transaction that took place a few weeks back. Uh, at that time, the largest transaction in the history of U.S. cannabis, uh, about seven hundred million dollars. Um, but what Pharmacan did was it really Really allowed us to leapfrog this next phase of our growth um, and enter into this next set of markets that we were already targeting. Pharmacan's a Midwest-based uh, cannabis company that had operations in six markets, all Midwest to East Coast. So it was a great complement to our footprint, and uh, we took action and, and brought them under our umbrella, and we're now stronger for it. Now, for people that may not be familiar with how this industry works, and it is a new business, can you explain the role that licensed play, how they differ in cost, and how those licenses then have to be translated into actual physical establishments. But there are a lot of processes in, the, in, in, the, in how this make, comes together. Sure. Um, I could do an hour on it, but I'll do it in 30 seconds. All right. Uh, so basically, basically, there's no interstate commerce, first and foremost. So every state has its own program, and that program is unique to that state. Um, and all of the states <clears throat> written into their program, um, it is explicit that you must have a license to grow marijuana in that state in order to manufacture products, distribute it, and retail it all within the state. So there are nuances to each of these programs, but they're all pretty similar. Um, and so you must have one of these licenses. Uh, you know, at the end of the day, this industry is a NIMBY industry. Um, uh, and I think what's really interesting is you have an industry that has such an overwhelming support by the public. Uh, over 90% of the public believes medical marijuana should be legal. Now we're, you know, 60 plus percent believe recreational marijuana should be legal. We're in a Congress that just got a lot better for marijuana uh, a week ago. Yet, uh, with all the support there is to legalize marijuana and end prohibition, it's still a NIMBY industry. So, you know, this is not my backyard, which, you know, we're okay with. We embrace. It's what the public, I think, that's what the public wants now and will want for the investable future. So you have a really limited nature of these licenses. And again, each state different. Um, but I'm here in Los Angeles today. And for example, in all of L.A. County, 12 million people plus a lot of tourists, um, there are less than 200 retail licenses. So, you know, limited licenses, really arduous zoning restrictions around those licenses, um, but, you know, enough so that there's critical mass to be able to serve the public and, and make marijuana accessible. Okay, got it. And I wonder if what you could describe you've learned from the experience in Canada where the country has made it legal for recreational use. Has that informed or changed any of your thoughts? 
it's progress. Right? I mean, we've been doing this for almost 10 years, and, and these check-in, these moments to check in on the progress that not only society and the public is making in regards to their viewpoint, but the commercial aspects of this industry and then the political realities, um, this is a big check-in, right? You have the first you know, nation of its size to legalize marijuana for recreational purposes a couple of weeks ago. And you know what we learned? We learned that the, the cities didn't burn down, right? And that's what we keep seeing <clears throat> as progress is made around the world. But, you know, things are, things are better. They're not worse. They get better, progressively better, um, as these laws change. You know, the prohibition against marijuana just doesn't work. It's a failed effort. Um, and legalized marijuana and regulating and taxing it is the answer. And so what I really like about what we've seen in Canada, because it's been so successful without any hiccups, really, is I really feel like it is the big finger wagging down here to us in the U.S. saying, you know, you claim to be leaders, you know, in business and industry, um, you know, you're stock market, your exchanges are, you know, leaders in, in what they do, and yet you can't list a U.S. weed company on the New York Stock Exchange or NASDAQ yet, and yet it's still federally illegal, while, you know, your neighbors to your north here run with this thing. So um, it puts pressure on the U.S., and, and that's something that we're grateful for. What would be the most important change that would help the industry? Would it relate to banking rules and regulations? Not really. I mean, you know, we, we're fully banked as are all of our counterparts and, and peers in this industry from a depository perspective. You know, we don't have access to traditional banking services, but it all fits in the same bucket. It's banking services, it's merchant processing, it's proper tax treatment. Um, it's everything that comes along with, you know, being a lawful business, uh, paying your taxes and receiving the protections um, and the opportunities that paying your taxes and being upstanding provide you. And, and so that that next big moment uh, that you're asking about really has to do with Congress, and it really has to do with permanent protection of, of state-sanctioned marijuana businesses. And I firmly believe we will see that here in our country in FY19. Thanks very much for being with us. Adam Bierman, co-founder, chief executive, MedMen, based in Los Angeles, giving us his view based on his experience in the cannabis industry. Everybody talks about the U.S. dollar, but no one does anything about it. Well, we're going to change that here in the Bloomberg Interactive Brokers studio. I want to introduce Gary Schilling. He is the president of A. Gary Schilling & Company. He is a Bloomberg Opinion columnist. He is also the author of The Age of Deleveraging, Investment Strategies for a Decade of Slow Growth and deflation. A. Gary Schilling, thank you very much for being with us. Let's begin with the strength of the U.S. dollar. Is it gaining in strength because people love the United States, or is it they just don't want to own anything else? Hey, it's a combination, Tim. I mean, the, the U.S. is clearly the safe haven, and you look at all the, the problems around the world with protectionism and and. U.S. is growing faster uh, than other countries, and and uh, it, it's it's traditional safe haven. One of the interesting things is, even if uh, even if problems start in this country, and I think that's pretty clear with uh, Trump's attitude on the trade wars with China, the dollar benefits. Uh, so so you ha you have a, a number of reasons that I think the dollar is is going to continue to be strong. And right day, today, as we speak, it's flying, as I'm sure you're aware. 
I am aware, and I'm aware also that you say that there are six long-term criteria for the dominance of the U.S. dollar. Go ahead. Tell us quickly. Well, the first one is that, and we've, We've, I've, I've studied this going back to ancient, uh, ancient times, uh, Greek and Rome, and and looked at what what are the characteristics of the world's leading currency. Um, the first one is rapid growth, and we were we we're growing much more rapidly than other developed countries. China, yeah, faster growth, but it's a developing country and it's slowing down. Second one is uh, huge economy, um, and the U.S. is is still clearly the largest economy in the world. We're about 40% bigger than uh, China, which is in second place. Uh, third one is deep and broad financial markets. And and we certainly have that uh, in the U.S. You look at the stock market capitalization, $32 trillion. Eurozone, $11 trillion. China, about $9 trillion. Japan, $6 trillion. Uh, and and our treasury market, you know, 15.3 trillion compares to 6.7.6 trillion in Japan, 6.1 in in China, and 1.6 in Germany. So that's that's the the third thing. The, the fourth one is free and open markets and economy, and we certainly we certainly have that. If you look at the World Bank. Uh, ranking of of uh, where it's easy to do business, uh, the U.S. is is close to the top. And you look at something like China, of course, it's it's uh, it's very difficult. Um, fifth reason is lack of substitutes. And you know, the dollar of all the world's transactions in in uh, trade and capital flows, the dollar is involved in eighty-seven percent of those. Uh, there really isn't any any option. Uh, and and uh, in, in terms of substitution, uh, most of the uh, over 50% of the world's currency reserves are in dollars. Sixth thing is credibility, and I think we're seeing that clearly. And um, and I've added uh, this is a list I've had for some time. I've had a seventh one, which is that uh, Trump is really asserting the U.S. Uh, power, economic, military, financial power on the world stage. We've had that really since World War II, but it has not been exercised to the extent that he does. And I think that is gaining a lot of credibility for the U.S. and the dollar uh, foreigners, whether they like it or not. Uh, he's really saying, hey, we got the, we got the upper hand. We're going to exercise it. Let's talk about the general economy. Is there a looming recession? Yeah, I think there probably is. Now, you know, to say that it's it's uh, going to unroll un, un, unfold in the next month or two, uh, that's always a dangerous bet. One one very wise economist uh, once said, "You should forecast what will happen or when it will happen, but not both." Uh, but there are a lot of signs, and I've written that up in our latest monthly uh, newsletter, Insight. Um, Certainly, you have the, the turn down in stocks, and that's a leading indicator. Housing, housing, very interest rate sensitive, and it is uh, it is uh, responding to the Fed's raising rates. And the Fed raising rates, you know, don't fight the Fed. Uh, when the Fed starts to raise rates, sooner or later they kill the economy. Twelve or thirteen times the post-war period, they didn't get a soft landing only once in the mid '90s, and now they're not only raising interest rates, but they're selling off a portfolio. They've had a century of experience with interest rates, and they still can't affect soft landing. So, selling off the portfolio on on top of that, and then you look at the exuberance we've seen uh, in consumers and and the uh, expansion of of things like leverage loans, and you know. People zealous for yield, rushing into uh, into hedge funds, of uh, uh, hedge funds, private equity, and so on. All of these things are rem- are very similar uh, 
similarly occur at a top. So I think there's a lot of reasons to believe we're, we're at a top. Now, that doesn't mean it's going to turn down immediately, but um, I think that the, the odds of a recession are probably over 50% starting in the next year or so. Gary, if you happen to be an investor who is expecting higher interest rates, are you going to be disappointed? Uh, yeah, I think you probably are because there are two there are two things working there. And full disclosure, Tim, as you know, I in 1981 when the yield on the 30-year bond was 16.7 uh, percent, I said we're entering the run bond rally of a lifetime. And since then, long treasuries have outperformed the S&P since the early 80s by six times. So I'm, 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 I've got a bias there, clearly. But the point is, you've got two forces there. Uh, the Fed is tightening, and there is a spillover. I mean, for every 100 basis point increase in the Fed funds on average in the post-war period, you get a 44 uh, basis point spillover to 10-year treasuries, but only a 24 spillover to uh, to a long-term treasury, 30-year. In other words, the further away you get from the Fed, uh, the less the Fed matters and the more other things matter. In the long run, it's it's inflation. There's a 60% correlation between uh, the CPI year over year in the post-war period and, and, and treasury bonds. Uh, so you've got the Fed tightening, but there's some spillover. But on the other side, you've got a lot of deflationary forces here. You look at you look at protectionism, globalization moving all these high-paid jobs to uh, China and other developing countries. You look at the uberization of the world, the on-demand, the gig economy, if you will. Uh, unions, uh, they're very high-paid, and, and they've virtually disappeared, uh, particularly in the private sector. You've got a lot of forces there that are telling you there's a uh, deflationary climate. And, of course, we get a recession even more so. So um, I think that uh, I think we could be getting close to the peak in, in interest rates, particularly on the long end, even though the Fed is still raising on the short end. Gary Schilling is a Bloomberg View columnist. He's the president of A. Gary Schilling and Company. It is a consultancy based in Springfield, New Jersey. He is the author of The Age of Deleveraging Investment Strategies for a Decade of Slow Growth and Deflation. And he is also the author of A. Gary Schilling's Insight, Economic Research and Investment Strategy. Well, we turn our attention now to the world of crude oil here at the Bloomberg Interactive Brokers Studios. And joining us is John Kilduff. He is the founding partner of Again Capital. John, always a pleasure. Brent crude higher by about 1.5% at $71 a barrel. West Texas Intermediate on the NYMEX up 1.5% at $61 a barrel. Have we hit the lows for this year when it comes to oil prices? I think potentially, uh, Pam, and good morning to you. Great to be on. Uh, Friday's low was $59.26 for WTI, and uh, it's sort of sticking out on the on the charts that we look at as a bit of a, a sore thumb low. So uh, we're getting some recovery here, uh, you know, partly because this um, nearly $17 sell-off over the course of a month, you know, got the expected reaction you would uh, have thought would come from Saudi Arabia and, and the rest of OPEC and, and Russia to a lesser degree. Well, that reaction is what? To cut production by how many barrels of oil a day? 
Well, it's it's a little sketchy, which is why the market isn't necessarily rallying more on the news. Uh, the Saudis came out pushing for a million barrel per day uh, cut. Uh, the Russian oil minister not so enthusiastic about it, and it doesn't seem like the rest of OPEC uh, is either. Although I'll point out to you that uh, based upon some of the data that we look at, that the Saudis are already in the process of cutting output by about 500,000 barrels for December. So they, they are reacting uh, to this now. And it's also not unexpected given that the U.S. elections in the rearview mirror, they probably feel more comfortable being able to rein in production, get prices up a bit, and not necessarily risk the wrath of their ally, President Trump. Does it matter that at the same time that the Saudis are ratcheting back their production by half a million barrels a day, that Iran is now under greater sanction and making it more difficult for it to sell its oil abroad? Well, interesting, Tim. Part of the uh, the crush here in prices um, was the fact that the administration granted eight waivers to really Iran's the bulk of Iran's customers to continue to buy oil. There was a sense when November rolled around and the sanctions were supposed to take effect that there would be a big impact on Iranian exports and supplies to the market. That a lot would be coming off. Um, there's still some coming off. Don't get me wrong, but. Uh, Nowhere near the sort of feared levels that were in, that got into this market and pushed prices up towards you know eighty dollars a barrel for WTI back in October. Uh, it was it was uh, the, the the administration really uh, cut the legs out from under Saudi Arabia and Russia, who rushed increased production and exports to the market ahead of the sanctions. So um, I guess the expression is you know did they get played or not? It may be kind of, but uh, the market certainly uh, got played as well in terms of this uh, this turnaround in policy, at least for now, by the administration on Iran. If this is the case, does that benefit U.S. producers? The U.S. producers are a real thorn right now in, in the Saudis and OPEC and Russia's side. Uh, we're We're exporting more oil than ever before. We're averaging about a 2.5 million barrel per day clip, Tim, from zero just a couple of years ago, just to put it in perspective. Um, it's only going to go up. There's there's this massive activity along the Gulf Coast to outlet more and more U.S. crude oil uh, to the market. So um, the, the Saudi response in terms of cutting back here, I think, is justified if they want to get prices stabilized and back higher. But they might have to be uh, shouldering a lot more of the cutback than they might have realized as we get into 2019. This is a very interesting setup now that the U.S. could actually become one of the dominant global suppliers here uh, as we get into next year. Take that forward and explain what that would mean for the input costs for the chemical industry, the plastics business, or anything that uses fossil fuel. Well, it's going to keep it low for sure, uh, I think, on a global basis. So it should continue to be good times uh, for that very cyclical uh, industry. The rub is going to be whether or not the uh, the advantage that U.S. refiners have had will persist. I mean, right, WTI, Texas crude continues to be about $10 under uh, the international markers like Brent, which is 71 today. Um, to the extent that U.S. supplies tighten here because of all this export activity, like we're seeing with natural gas, uh, the, the the U.S. refiners could actually find themselves in a disadvantage because of what the exploration and production companies are doing in terms of not selling to them at a discount, but selling at a higher price to the world market. Last question to you. Give you about 25 seconds. Natural gas at $3.78 per million BTU. Do we see $4 per million BTU net gas? 
Tim, the natural gas market could get really ugly here for consumers. We're, we're starting off this winter heating season with supplies about 15% below last year and the five-year average. That sets up this market to be really tightly supplied. You get a couple of more of these early season coal snaps, the price could double uh, at, at this point as you get into January uh, and December and January. We're going to keep watching that, that's for sure. John Kilda, founding partner of Again Capital, telling us about oil and natural gas. Our topic now is the hotel and hospitality industry. My guest is Jay Stein. He is the chief executive of Dream Hotel Group, and he joins us here in studio. Jay, thanks very much for being here. Tell people a little bit about Dream Hotel Group and how it has transformed itself from being an operation that owned and managed the properties to one that is focused well, you tell the story. That's exactly it. So, uh, and, and thanks for having me. Nice to be here. So we have uh, transformed the company. We were more of a uh, ownership and we built hotels and, and managed those. And they were cool, hip, lifestyle hotels, generally one-off uh, properties. And then uh, we took some of those hotels that were doing very well and the public seemed to enjoy them and converted them into brands. Uh, this started in earnest about five years ago, and um, it's allowing us to grow much quicker because now we're using other developers as opposed to just our own money. Um, and these are expensive assets. They're about $150 million plus a piece to build. Um, and they take three to five, six, seven years sometimes to develop. So on our own, it was taking a long time to build up the number of properties. But now we're signing a deal about one every month, every month and a half or so. so. And you just, well, I wouldn't say just, but you have opened your first hotel in Los Angeles. We did uh, about a year and four months ago at this point. Uh, 168 room property with a tremendous amount of food and beverage, nightlife entertainment we have six different venues there and uh it's one of the most fun hotels certainly in the la market explain why that aspect of the hospitality industry the nightlife the entertainment the restaurants why is that so important in an era of air b2b so that is what we do. That's what we're famous for. We create environments where uh, social activity will happen. A lot of hotels uh, focus on their guest rooms, and as we do as well, but we add in that element where people from the community want to come use the hotel for nightlife, food and beverage, health and wellness, uh, and other uh, social things that, that we uh, program for the hotel and um, you know Airbnb doesn't have a restaurant uh, in somebody's apartment so uh, what we do is very different and uh, it's always been uh, something that we've been able to uh, hang our hat on and, and make us unique in the industry. Is that something that you encouraged and emphasized and accelerated because you see what is happening with the popularity of Airbnb? Definitely not. We were doing this way before Airbnb had uh, had come to uh, in, into existence, and um, 
you know, I, I look back in the industry and saw that's what hotels were back in the 40s, 50s, 60s. Great meeting places, great uh, social hubs for the community. And then we got away from that uh, in the 70s, 80s, 90s. They were really big box hotels. They weren't very meaningful to uh, the community that, that they were in often. And um, so around the mid-80s, uh, 90s, uh, Ian Schrager started changing uh, what the landscape was like, and we caught on pretty quickly, and uh, now we've been doing lifestyle hotels for over 20 years. Now, you've got a background, obviously, in the hospitality industry, having worked for Doral Hotels and Resorts, as well as Hilton International, Starwood. What is the limit of consolidation if there is one in the hotel industry it seems that they're just getting bigger and bigger and does that hurt the quality of the product that's being offered you know i don't think it hurts the quality i think it's difficult for uh individual developers that are going to these big companies and wanting to use one of their brands because now you've got so much overlap and so much of that product in the same city. Marriott could have 20 hotels in one city where they, if they used to have five or eight, it seemed like a lot. So I think that could be a little difficult for an owner. Remember, Marriott doesn't own the hotels, uh, and I'm using Marriott, but you know any of the big brands. Um, so I think their consolidation has been uh, maybe a, a bit of a concern. For us, um, a small company like, like ours, uh, it doesn't really affect us. In fact, I think it helps us because those developers that really want um, a unique, uh, one-off type, uh, independent type property, uh, those it's going to be difficult for those companies to deliver it where that's really our forte, and that's why they come to us. So. What is, the, uh, what is the background of the new brand, Unscripted Hotels? So Unscripted, the main reason we uh, launched it, it gave us the opportunity to go into secondary markets or even tertiary markets, uh, but where there's a cool vibe, again, ability to drive some social interaction, where our other three brands really belong in Durham, primary. North Carolina is an example where you have example. one of the Unscripted brands. You know, it's an up-and-coming city, but I don't think it's ever going to become a primary market for a number of years uh, from now. But it's got a great history in the tobacco industry, and now much of those old buildings have been converted to tech, and uh, uh, it's a great foodie town. So it was a perfect example of where Unscripted belonged. What kinds of properties do you look for in individual locations? I know that you've got plans for Palm Springs, for Atlanta, for Dallas, Austin, and so on. What are the properties requirements? So we've got four brands. Uh, the Chatwell, which is pure luxury. Uh, uh, the Dream Down Dream brand, which is uh, one notch below that. Time as well. Difference between those two. One has a lot of food and beverage. One has middle, middle amount of food and beverage. And uh, Unscripted, as I mentioned, could also go in the secondary locations. So we're looking for properties that make sense for any of those four brands. By adding an Unscripted, now we have hundreds and hundreds of locations that one of our four brands makes sense for and uh, looking for a good owner who uh, is looking for a lifestyle hotel someone that's going to bring the community into the property and believes in uh, uh, the concepts that we're doing a point to you money uh, raising money uh, do you find that people are throwing money at this industry because it has become such a glamorous part of lifestyle or is it strictly business you know, everything comes down to business. You may have a, uh, a high net worth individual that just does a vanity play here or there, 
but uh, there's not a lot of that out there. So yeah, it comes down to business, and you've got to be able to get them financed. Um, wasn't very easy for us early. You know, we people don't know our brands, but as we're growing now, uh, it's becoming a little easier. Um, but it depends on the ebb and flow of uh, how lenders are, are lending. Last point to you having to do with travel is where are you seeing outsized interest in new tourism? Is it in these tertiary and secondary markets? You know, I think there's tourism everywhere, and uh, there always was. There was interest in uh, in great cities, and there was interest in little quirky towns that had something special about them. I think the difference now, people are taking advantage of those little quirky things they have. If they're known for some great food item or a unique uh, experience that you can do there, um, you know, people want to take advantage, as you, as you know, everybody's talking about experiences and experiences. So it's not just the hotel. It's, it's you want to travel, you want to go see things. And uh, there's a lot to see around this country and around the globe. And people are as curious as ever. And um, uh, I think our industry has a long way to go. Thanks very much. Jay Stein, he is the chief executive of Dream Hotel Group. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.